Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible Berry Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Samaya Valley opens her long awaited Serpentine Pavilion. The UK government's chief architect, Andy Von Bradsky, quits. The RIBA's 2021 fellows criticised for a lack of women and Roger Stoke Harbour and Partners' contentious South Kensington Tube Station overhaul is sent back to the drawing board. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My special guest this week is Sean Adams. Sean is a writer, architectural designer, and co-founder of Poor Collective. Welcome to the show. Our first story is all about the Serpentine Pavilion, which opens this week, a year later than originally planned, and, and as usual for this prestigious commission, has been reviewed in the AJ, Guardian, and almost universally across the built environment media. This is the 20th Serpentine Pavilion to be erected in London's Kensington Gardens, and it's been designed by Counterspace of Johannesburg, continuing the Serpent Gallery's long-running tradition of inviting new international architectural talents to design their very first work on UK soil. Counterspace is led by the rising star architect Samaya Valley, who will be turning 31 this year, making her the youngest ever designer of the landmark pavilion. This year's installation has been inspired by the architecture and lived experience of immigrant spaces throughout the city. Unusually, it also includes four satellite installations at important community cultural hubs in Finsbury Park, Deptford, Notting Hill and Barking, and a new £100,000 annual fellowship programme for artists exploring art, spatial politics and community practice. Counterspace, which has collaborated with the Serpentine on a series of one-off and online research projects throughout the past year, said the themes behind the pavilion have been made even more relevant by the coronavirus pandemic. Valley said, My practice and this pavilion are centred around amplifying and collaborating with multiple and diverse voices from many different histories, with an interest of themes of identity, community, belonging and gathering. Regular listeners will remember we covered the uproar around the pavilion's foundations last month after 85 cubic metres of concrete were poured into the ground to support the structure. Many architects questioned the potential environmental impact, calling the use of this much concrete, which is a highly carbon-intensive material, disproportionate and excessive. 
The fact the Serpentine's artistic director, Hans Ulrich Obrist, previously said the gallery would place ecology, quote, at the heart of everything we do, was also highlighted by the critics. In response to this uproar, Valley told AJ this week, there's no defence for not having an agenda on sustainability or the use of materials. It's actually a carbon negative building, she said, adding, but this has brought about a conversation and Hans Ulrich has said to me, all future pavilions will now subscribe to being carbon negative. The Serpentine Pavilion opens this Friday and runs until the 17th of October, after which it will be taken down and reconstructed by Therm Group, a developer and operator of wellbeing resorts, which has acquired the structure for an undisclosed sum. So, Sean, what do you think of the pavilion this year? Does it represent a profound cultural shift for this central London pop-up structure, typically associated with swanky summer drinks parties and with abstract high architecture, to instead be spotlighting and reflecting the lived experience of London's migrant communities, whose very community spaces often occupy the fringes of society and are frequently threatened with redevelopment? Has the architects succeeded in your view? Or, with the high society magazine Tatler declaring the pavilion, quote, this summer's cultural hotspot, is the pavilion still ultimately just a bougie setting for canapes and Prosecco? Um, I, th- I think the pavilion like represents a powerful shift in, in the Serpentine's um, kind of annual celebration of, of international architecture. Because I think in the past, when I've gone to the, the Serpentine um, pavilion, I've not really thought, well, this is standing out or this is promoting or platforming a particular agenda. I think I'm kind of going there and I'm like, oh, I mean... This is quite cool. I've never seen this architect build anything over in, in the UK before. Uh, and then after five minutes, I've, I've, I've kind of left. <laughs> and I haven't been really uh, moved in, in the same way that I think that um, the latest Serpentine Pavilion um, really will move me. And I think what is really important about this one is the fact that it's, it's looking at the migrant communities and how they've contributed and given them a, a platform. I mean, the fact that it's... it's um, like one or five pieces that are going to be spread throughout the city. I think that's quite powerful and it speaks to to this consciousness about these migrant co- uh, communities because I think we've seen it over, over the last few years that these kind of uh, communities are just getting pushed to the periphery. No one seems to care about them um, and their voices are, are, are kind of going unheard. And I think now is, is the time to really bring these voices to the centre stage. And I think... Um, just a perfect time to, to have these conversations. So I'm just thinking, for more than two decades, the Serpentine Pavilion has brought new international architectural talents to London to deliver their very first ever UK work in front of a huge and admiring audience. It, it's helped raise the profile of architecture as a rival to the art world, uh, but it's also helped boost the careers of many great names, including Zaha Hadid, Daniel Liebskin and Sana. Uh, but with the selection of a non-architect, Um, The US urban planner turned artist Theista Gates to design the 2022 installation, next year's installation. Is the Serpentine Pavilion Commission now at a crossroads? And if change is coming, how are you hoping the commission involves so it can deliver what societies really need from architecture in the future? What is super interesting about this is that, like, whilst they've spoken about communities and bringing people together, (laughs) like... What architect has really done that in the Serpentine Pavilion? I mean, 
Francis Kerry, I think he did a good job in, in doing that um, when his pavilion was looking at the tree and communities in Western Africa. But outside of that, I don't know if I would say that the, that the architecture of the pavilion are actually bringing communities together. I think they're more still quite egotistical statements like, OK, I'm this, uh, I'm this famous architect and I'm going to put my statement and leave my mark here. Because I think a lot of people are going to... To, to, to look at the pavilion and think, well, this is from uh, for a completely different class. I mean, myself, come from a working class background, I couldn't really tell you any people from around my area that is travelling all the way there to see the pavilion. And I think that kind of says a lot because it, it's the kind of people that and their agenda that are attracting people to actually come. And I think if you have an artist, a, a kind of urban planner whose who's kind of narratives and stories kind of centre on... Um, people that are often on the uh, on the kind of periphery of society. I mean, that's going to bring and attract a whole new audience. So, I think in a way, it's it's, it's kind of better. And we're we're increasingly seeing that a lot of the people in in the UK that are are doing architecture with a with, um well without a capital A, um they aren't necessarily architects. Some of the kind of most interesting works that we're seeing are maybe people that have dabbled within the world of architecture. But it's usually the people that aren't even architects that are making the most difference and really care about communities, really care about making a, a, a difference, um, really care about, like, what does design say to the world instead of kind of just designing something that um, you can kind of swatter around with, with canapes and, and, and glasses of, of champagne. What sort of changes do you think the Serpentine Gallery should be making potentially to the to the brief and the delivery programme to make sure that excessive structural solutions like this could be avoided in the future? Um, you know, Samai Valley said that carbon negative is going to be a requirement in the future. Is that enough? Um, and also, uh, writing in The Guardian, Ollie Wainwright, he, he asked how on earth this happened, and he was told that one of the requirements from the Royal Parks, who run the gardens, is that the lawn has to be returned back to an, its original condition as a sort of pristine lawn. Uh, is there a kind of design solution that you could imagine uh, that would allow a pavilion to sit on top of the lawn without ever disturbing it? To me, the first thing that comes to mind is, why isn't there just permanent footings that are created and left there and they do not need to be made from concrete why couldn't these footings be here and within the brief it says okay you you're able to design a pavilion however you need to make sure that the well the footings are here and you need to make sure that you kind of abide by this so that it can actually be structurally sound and i think for me that seemed like a no-brainer because the pavilion is there for several months so if you were to have uh footings that are, are there forever then like we won't be having this problem of okay now we need to uh, pour concrete and 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 like have the concrete when we're kind of trying to say that ecology is at the center of everything that that we do so i think that's the kind of first thing um that i would say i think in terms of the pristine lawn i mean we need to be thinking what is what is more important here <laughs> is keeping the lawn pristine the most important thing or is it actually about um, given a platform to people and I, I'm sure I'm sure like um, the lawn there's other parts of the lawn that can still look fine and I'm sure that's not really a big e e excuse to me I think that's that that is not enough for me to 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 not want to just have permanent footings I think really and truly the, the permanent footings has to be the the thing that they they do next because otherwise you're gonna continuously have this have this problem 
You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. Open City friends receive a bunch of perks, including discounts on all Open City events and publications, audio walking tours of amazing parts of London and friends events at special locations around the city. Visit open-city.org.uk forward slash support to find out more. Our next story this week was covered in the AJ and has created ripples through the built environment media. The government's chief architect, Andy Von Bradsky, is to step down next month after two years in the position. In the £61,000 a year role, Von Bradsky was tasked with improving the design quality of new housing developments in the UK. This was to be done by raising awareness, improving policy and official guidance. During his tenure, Von Bradsky worked on the National Design Guide, the National Model Design Code and other design-related initiatives such as the Home of 2030 competition won by Newcastle-based Mawson Kerr and Open Studio. Coinciding with his time as chief architect, we also saw the controversial expansion of permitted development rights, which critics say has allowed developers to swerve planning permission and erect slum housing. So Sean, who is Andy Von Bradsky and what has he achieved as the government's chief architect? For a long time, the UK, unlike other countries around the world, had no chief architect, despite having a chief medic, a chief scientist and other chief advisors that we now see on TV quite a lot. Has the creation of this role, with Von Bradsky as its first incumbent, led to real progress on housing design and delivery, or or are we still facing as much of a crisis now as we did back in 2019 when he was hired? So Andy Von Bradsky is the, well, now is the former head of architecture at the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government. But what is, what is kind of interesting about this, this role is the fact that, like, he's the first person in around 15 years to serve as a government chief architect. I mean, like, like you kind of mentioned before, like, there's so many different sectors that have chiefs. So I think it's quite clear that there's, there's a kind of issue already with how how the government kind of looks at architects and how how relevant they actually are in policy making. If we look at what he's kind of done in in the last two years, he's kind of kind of like his role has been working on um, the government's response to um, the Grandfather Tower tragedy, um, looking at the National Model for Design Code. But then again, when we think about these design codes, we also got to think. Are they doing what they're kind of set out to do? Or are they doing more damage? Because in a way, sometimes we look at them and we think, okay, they've set out a clear framework of, of housing standards. But then uh, uh, for the majority of the time, it's like, well, developers are, are looking at this as these are, this is the bare minimum. So we need to make sure we, we tick this, this box. There's no kind of looking at these, these guys and thinking, you know what? What are ambitions beyond this? Can can we um, add more square meters to to these spaces that we're creating? Can we create more kind of um, livable spaces? No, <laughs> I mean a lot of the time is it's kind of like we look at these numbers and how do we how do we get these numbers to kind of um, work out? And I think in a way a lot of people didn't actually know he was the chief architect, and I think that that's another massive problem. Like the fact that when it comes to housing, like architects are talking about housing within the sector, but when we talk about policy, it feels as if like 
these same architects aren't transitioning over and making these kind of um the like writing these policies and 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 kind of flagging up all of these issues because it's the it's the architects that day to day are actually dealing with these codes however it's the other people in policy that are writing them and i feel like there's a a, a clear disconnect between the two and i think there really needs to be someone that genuinely cares about about creating um housing for for the kind of most um marginalized and unheard people because i think in a way it's those people that are are kind of at getting kicked in the teeth repeatedly every time we kind of revise these these um design codes um over the two years i'm i don't know how much i would say that he's he, he's he's really he's really done but he has kind of set the foundation for someone else to to pick up um some of his work but i think a lot of the kind of statements that got thrown around about like amplifying the voices of local residents um i'm yet to i'm not yet to really see that and i think it, it takes long-term change to 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 allow this to happen and i think within two years you can't really say get local voices heard like it's really impossible we need someone in a position that really cares for a, a significant amount of time i mean it certainly sounds like quite a hard job because you know while he was there as the officially the chief architect you had a government which earlier this year basically announced a controversial expands uh, controversial plans to expand permitted development rights and effectively what that does is it allows many unused commercial buildings such as shops gyms restaurants and banks to be converted into housing without planning permission i mean that's exactly what an architect does they get the planning permission so it seems like you know he's the chief architect they're just going ahead and kind of pulling the rug out from under his feet with that policy um it's a move which many fear may leave the gates wide open to unscrupulous developers to create the slums of the future now, similar to what you said, some commentators have remarked that Von Bradsky, despite his high, high salary and significant remit, was largely absent figure from architecture culture, or rarely seen outside a kind of small bubble of industry and political events. Um, you know, in fact, when news broke of Bradsky's resignation, the Financial Times architecture critic Edward Heathcote he tweeted, "Quote." There was a government head of architecture? Who knew? Yeah, that, that, that was his response. But um, obviously, it's still unknown who will be taking over from, from Bradsky. The, the job's going to be advertised, Sean. Could be, could be one for you. Um, you know, what, what would you like to see from his successor? Um, you know, should the government's head of architecture be more present in the industry? Uh, or is it okay for civil servants to just quietly work behind the scenes? Uh, you know, what kind of architecture, what kind of architect would you like to see take on this kind of prestigious role? When it comes to things like housing, um, and when you're talking about, like, local residents who are, are, are kind of suffering and seem to be at the brunt of the of the housing industry, like, you need to be amongst these people. You need to be at these uh, events. You need to be, like, approachable. So I think for the next person, it needs to be someone that everyone in the industry knows. It needs to be someone that's actively commenting, actively kind of going against the grain and standing up for residents. Because I think it's difficult. Of course it's difficult. As an architect and a designer, you, you kind of want to get your, your, your proposal... Uh, across the line you, you and sometimes it, it's difficult kind of uh, sympathizing with the residents when you're kind of thinking of the success of your own business but there's endless amounts of, of, of architects that are kind of always on twitter just showing you the housing standards and bashing them and we all know we all know a few that are doing that and i think those are the kind of people that genuinely want to see change um 
I think those are the people that we re- we always see at the events. We always see going to the tours. We always see putting their hand up and asking the awkward questions that no one wants to <laughs> no one wants to say. But it, but it's really the elephant in the room. And I think that kind of humility and understanding and kind of being on the ground and 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 kind of working with these kind of uh, local residents with these local communities. That is really what you need. You need an architect that is here for the people. And I think it's weird because when when I think of architect, I think of that being the person that kind of designs um, buildings for others. But a lot of the time, it doesn't necessarily feel that. Or it doesn't feel that way because the people that are writing these policies have never lived in the types of houses that they're designing. So in a way, you you kind of want someone that has lived experiences. Um, Lived experiences so they know, you know, when they're looking at these policies, how could anyone ever live like this? Because if you're so far removed from, from, from these environments, you're looking at the policy and thinking, yeah, I mean, that looks about right. Like, and I think we need someone that really understands who's lived in, in poor housing and, and, and like speaks to all of these locals and doesn't make these kind of sweeping statements of, okay, I'm going to do this. Like, we need kind of less talking and more action. And I think that's kind of what it boils down to. Like, I would prefer to see what you've done instead of you kind of just saying what you propose to do and, and nothing happens and, and you kind of next thing you know you've kind of left your your role well you've won me over if it was up to me you'd have the job <laughs> our third story this week was covered in the architects journal the aj and it's all to do with the controversial redevelopment of south kensington underground station Rogers Sturk Harbour and Partners has been sent back to the drawing board to once again revise its designs for a development above the station, just five months after it submitted fine-tuned plans for the site. The Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea's planning committee had been due to finally rule on the application for 50 homes and commercial space around the station on the 3rd of June, but this has now been delayed until further notice. The designs drawn up alongside Julian Harrop Architects for Native Land and TFL have been tipped for approval despite opposition from 1,900 residents, 22 local groups and five local councillors as well as the area's MP. The deferral of the planning committee ruling comes after Native Land and TFL requested extra time to make last minute amendments to the designs. This is reported to have included a height reduction and setback of several buildings and reduced glazing on the top levels of the bullnose building proposed over South Kensington Station itself. The latest tweaks will then be subject to yet another round of consultation on top of the consultation for the amendments which were already submitted back in January. Trustees from the Onslow Neighbourhood Association, who campaigned against RSHP's designs, have voiced their disappointment over the January revisions, stating the changes were purely cosmetic and once more ignored their local feedback. So Sean, what's this all about? Much of the pushback against this development centres around aesthetic points. Uh, Many people opposing the plans are concerned that the contemporary designs are, quote, inappropriate for the local area and would fail to preserve the character of South Ken. Certainly, the station has a huge amount of personality, uh, you know, with that gorgeous arcade as you leave the station. Um, and, you know, someone who's an RCA graduate and was very much a local. Um, what do you think about these designs? Are they complementary to the historic nature of the station and its surroundings? Uh, or are they destroying this gem of Bohemia? I think when you, when you have 
like over 1,500 objections from local residents. I think it says a lot about the, the scheme <laughs> in itself. And I think in a way, the original scheme just kind of looked like a behemoth, like that you would see from quite a, quite a while away. Like you'll be quite far away and you'll be able to, to still see it. So I think the problem there was that and it, it wasn't in keeping with the kind of uh, arch local architecture and I think the height the the amount of glazing I think the the use of material before they kind of chained it to the stone like because it is on a prominent corner as well I think it just kind of stood out like like a like a sore thumb a little bit and I think the residents must have just been thinking the same thing and I think especially the fact that if you think about exhibition road and all of the architecture along that road like I don't think the residents really want the, the station to be the, the kind of highlight of, of that area. Our final story this week was covered in the AJ and centres around calls for the RIBA to reform its fellowship programme after failing to appoint any women or non-binary people in 2021. The fellowship scheme sees RIBA chartered members nominate themselves for fellowships and, if appointed, they pay 20% higher membership fees. This is distinct from the honorary fellows who are appointed due to being ambassadors for the profession and the RIBA community. But the scheme has come under fire for its lack of gender diversity, with just 10 of the 70 existing RIBA fellow members being women and none being non-binary. The current concept and process is clearly not working in terms of equity. That's what has been said by Fionn Stevenson, Professor of Sustainable Development at Sheffield University. Christina Kerouli, Associate Professor in Community-Led Architecture and Urban Design at Sheffield Hallam University and a former RIBA Commissioner for Ethics, agreed. She said this fellowship, quote, most definitely needs a fundamental rethink. Karuli suggested dropping extra fees for fellows, as well as instigating a quota system, ensuring new fellows better reflect the membership of the RIBA. So, Sean, an all-male cohort for 2021 isn't a good look for the RIBA, who recently appointed a new head of diversity on an £80,000 salary. Uh, isn't this exactly the sort of blunder the head of diversity should be able to prevent happening? This is this is crazy. In in twenty twenty one, we're having an all male um, cohort. I mean, like over the last year, I think with everything that's happened, like you should have looked at this cohort and known that this is just kind of unacceptable. Because I think a lot of people's criticism is that ah, oh, maybe maybe they they didn't feel confident in kind of uh, applying, or maybe I think I saw I read that people were saying that maybe more men are, are more confident in applying. But then that's the problem. That is the problem. That's where the problem lies. If men are, are happy to apply and everyone else isn't, then there's a problem and there needs to be a strategy in place where it attracts everyone. Because I think when you create a welcoming kind of framework for things, that's when this kind of diversity will, will, will come through. And I think it's getting to a point now where it's getting so ridiculous that like no one would ever want to say, you know what, we need to set two spaces aside for this kind of person or this kind of person. But that's how it is looking like how it's going to be. Because I, I was reading on, on the AJ that that it said that out of the, the um, 70 fellows, only 10 of them are, are women. And then the article went on to say there's, there's more um, fellows called John, Richard, David or Dave than women. That is crazy. Like, that is absolutely crazy. Like, 
when you when you start to think about these things and, and like critically, you're thinking there is definitely something wrong going on here. There's there's a real issue. Like if the fellows are the ones that are we're, we're kind of celebrating and platforming, we can't be looking through the fellows and seeing the same kind of people. We need to be seeing a diverse range of people, and that's diversity in every single sense. And I think if in 2021 we're looking and we're seeing uh, uh, people that all look the same, there is a real problem. I mean, next year, really and truly, they might just have to just say, you know what, there can't be any men next year. Like, we need to have an all-kind-of-non-men um, cohort. And I think anyone that really, um, really cares about inclusion and diversity will be happy with that. Because I think, I think we really need to start... Um, these scales are, are, are not weighted. We need to really start elevating people because there's more than enough, there's more than enough non-binary or female people that we can celebrate. I think no one, no one can, can argue that it isn't. So why aren't we doing it? Christina Carulli, um, you know, she, she suggested, like you said, bringing in quotas for fellows in the future. Um, but look at the bigger picture. Are quotas in themselves enough or does it risk becoming a kind of box ticking exercise that, in itself fails to address those root causes of the lack of diversity in architecture. Um, like certainly this same approach, um, you know, has it, is it something that some people have witnessed negative impacts in other fields? For example, procurement, where some practitioners who are from diverse backgrounds have also reported being used for their names on bids, but then cynically not valued for their contribution to the actual project itself they're trying to win. How how do we go beyond the the quotas and actually make the real difference? I think there's there's two issues here. I mean, firstly, if we're having this same problem year in year out, as much as I think quotas could turn into a tick box exercise, we're gonna have to need some kind of quota because we need to formalize this. Like we can't keep saying, you know what? Well, there's no women or non-binary people that are applied or. Um, like the quality of these people are higher. Like no, like it, it, because they these people bring completely different viewpoints. And I think if if this keeps happening, we're gonna really have to have a quota. However, the issue with the quota is, like you said, that you now have these people in in these positions, but their voices aren't really being amplified, or they're kind of getting brushed to the side because okay, we've got them in here, but now we don't need to we don't need to actually do anything. But then I think the next step is to to challenge. What happens? Because in a way, like, if we were to... If these diverse practices, you're right, their names on things, but then they're kind of like, what are they actually doing? And I think, in a way, there might have to be in the interim, we start to see after a few months, okay, so you've now got these these um, non-binary fellows, you've also got these female fellows, so what are they doing within the organisation? Because we need to start, we can't, we need, we need to actually start chasing people and, ch- and seeing what they're doing. Because I think it's not enough to simply just say, you know what, we've got them now. And like, now that's enough. I think we need to be seeing the impact and the roles that they're playing. Otherwise, um, there's no point in them even having the fellows at all. Like really and truly, if we really want to have voices amplified, we need to see how, what processes you have in place to allow this to actually happen. And of course, as we know, genuine diversity is it's not just about gender, but about many identities and their interrelationships. So that's race, class, wealth, immigration status, language, physical abilities, family connections, sexuality and so on. And, you know, given such an enormously complex intersecting web of identities, how do we navigate the critical challenge of creating an industry that's genuinely diverse? 
I think, again, it goes back to if you create a welcoming and inviting space, then I generally think the diversity and 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 the kind of um, inclusive environment will follow. Because if you don't have that environment, then who is going to want to sign up or be a part of your organisation? Like, if you're looking... Because I think there's another thing. Like, we should really be able to see how many of each kind of gender or sexuality or religion is signing up for these um, kind of, like, to be a fellow in all kind of, uh, whether it's, like, architectural awards or or kind of titles, so then we can see who is actually being attracted. Because if you were to look at who's being attracted, then you can see maybe, maybe they're only picking um, all of these men because there's only men um, applying and then there's a problem that's the problem like there needs to be some re- critical reflection instead of trying like every year just going on and like moving ahead with things instead of looking at your looking at your own organization I think that's the that's the hardest thing for many organizations is looking inside and and seeing where is the actual issue when there's a real desire and 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 passion and ge- genuine genuine kind of um voices come into the forefront and wanted to make a change it can happen so i think in a way like if we if they really want to to be inclusive and diverse then next year we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna see it and if we don't see it next year then that's is it all fantastic sean it's been a great pleasure to feature you on the london this week uh where can our listeners keep up to speed on all the exciting things you're doing where should they look to to read about your work and hear what you're saying um, so you can follow me on Instagram. So I think that's underscore Sean, S-H-A-W-N, underscore Adams, A-D-A-M-S, underscore, and follow Poor Collective at P-O-O-R underscore collective. Awesome. Thanks very much for being on the show. Hope we can feature you again in the future. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Lundown show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to the Architects Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.